podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Hey everyone, welcome back to the lounge. It's been so long since we recorded an episode for you and I regret my delay, uh, but I've got a special episode for you today. In fact, a special series of episodes, Imond and Henan Hutchison Robitaille have teamed up to do a little bit of a collaboration on the Lawyer's Lounge for the next few episodes. And the first offering involves my dear partner, Jenny Bavorka, who practices criminal and civil litigation here at the firm. She joined us uh, right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic in October of 2020. She uh, comes to us after a storied career litigating in in Texas and elsewhere. She also has a former uh, career as a reporter. You're going to love hearing from Jenny. She's got a, a special uh, interview for you today. Jenny, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what you've got for them? Absolutely, Danielle. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer, his wife and colleague at the law firm here in Toronto of Browty Thorning LLP. For those of you that are true crime fanatics, you probably have heard of David Rudolph as an American attorney who represented Michael Peterson in the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. I first heard of David when I was a reporter at the News and Observer back in North Carolina in the early aughts. And David was a well-known champion of um, criminal defense law, but also sort of the underdog. And to have the opportunity now, almost 20 years later, to get to speak with him and Sonia, who's an accomplished reporter, lawyer, and uh, art gallery owner, um, was just an incredible opportunity. And it was interesting in the interview, we connected as Americans who have chosen to move to Canada and, and the differences in American and Canadian practice, how they use their practice to champion for civil rights change in the United States, Uh, And also sort of our thoughts on the differences in lifestyles, both here in Toronto and in the U.S. And I think the one thing we we all have in common is we love living in Toronto. We feel incredibly fortunate to be in Canada at this time. So I think you'll enjoy the interview. And and we do talk staircase. We do talk owl theory, which for people who followed the staircase, they know that is a component at the end of the series. So if you're into the owl theory, you're going to be into this interview, I think. Awesome. Well, uh, I've listened to it. It's a great interview. I think our our listeners are going to really enjoy it. Take it away, Jenny. Are you a legal professional seeking to stay up to date with the latest developments in Canadian driving offenses? Look no further than Iman's upcoming CPD webinar on Canadian driving offenses. On Saturday, May 13th, join a panel of experts from across Canada as they explore topical legal issues related to drinking and drug driving. Led by chairs Peter Keane and Karen Jokinen, this four-hour webinar will review relevant cases in context and provide vital analysis, strategy, and tactical advice to help you navigate the complexities of driving offenses in Canada. 
The repeal and replacement of driving provisions in the criminal code in 2018 and the COVID-19 pandemic have precipitated significant changes to the justice system, including its approach to impaired driving cases. Equip yourself with the knowledge and tools you need to succeed in this ever-evolving legal landscape. Attendees will earn CPD hours for EDI and professionalism content. Plus, get special pricing on registration with bundles that include the newly published second edition of our best-selling resource, Impaired Driving and Other Criminal Code Driving Offenses. Visit u.iman.ca slash id2-cpd to view the full agenda and speaker list and register today. judge said this case shows the criminal justice system worked. I disagree with that. This case showed that the criminal justice system didn't work. As good as it is in many instances, it's still subject to human error and human emotions and human motivations. So I I wanted to start with a question that as an American and American trained lawyer, I get all the time from Canadians and that's asked with a note of surprise. Why Canada? And so, do you mind beginning with that? David, do you want to start or do you want me to start? (laughs) Um, I think I can start. Um, I think the truth is that um, it started because we were concerned about uh, the influences that our daughter was seeing all around her uh, in the United States. Um, And the divisiveness, the, the hatred, the uh, uh, vitriol, um, it just wasn't, we didn't feel like it was a healthy environment uh, for her to grow up in. Uh, and so uh, in, uh, in early, uh, uh, I guess it was 2019, right, at, right during the middle of the end, epidemic, uh, pandemic, as a matter of fact, we started talking 2020. Okay, so, but it was right in the middle of the pandemic and, uh, and we started talking about you know, maybe we need to. Sonia actually said, "You know, we need a, We need a plan B. If uh, you know, if Trump gets elected again, uh, we really need a plan B." Uh, and so, um, you know, Canada was sort of the obvious choice uh, in terms of it being similar in terms of, uh, of uh, lifestyle and and uh, demographics in some ways to the U.S. It's close. Uh, you know, it seemed from afar that it was a similar place, although we found out it's quite different. Um, and so uh, uh, that's sort of what led us to the decision. Uh, and then once we sort of started exploring it, everything just sort of fell into place. It was almost like kismet. Um, you know, it was uh, one thing led to another. You know, we, we were looking for a house. And while we were looking for a house, well, first we were looking for a job. Uh, and because we needed a job to, to even go through the process. Uh, and, uh, and then we got a job. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we started looking for a house. And while we were looking for a house, uh, you know, on Zoom uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, uh, we found the York School, uh, which seemed great. And, and Zane got into there. And then we found a house in Hogs Hollow, uh, which was a great neighborhood. Uh, and so one thing just sort of led to the next, and, and it was almost sort of inexorable, but Sonia, add, add some, some uh, color to that. Sure. Well, I'll put a finer point on the decision, but first, just because um, I have a background in television, I need to ask, is this being recorded video? It is, 
But so, well, David, I, I, I love my husband very much, but I often have to correct the way he's looking at a camera and you need to back up so the top of your head's not chopped <laughs> off. <David. laughs> the audio but but that's okay i guess <laughs> we should all be framed to one side there you go yeah that's right we can all we can all mix it up but yes no you perfect there you go thank, um, you. thank you for your correction you're welcome anytime <laughs> <laughs> uh let me back up to the decision I, I i agree that part of it was the vitriol the device that is in the states but it was actually larger than that you know our child at the time was 10 years old uh, that we were we had the the potential re-election of trump in her first most formative years between six and 10, not only did she see a large amount of, of divisiveness, of um, inappropriate language, of uh, disrespect for people, but overall it was a lack of, of civility and positive civic leadership. It was how do you lead? How do you set an example? How do you work with other people who might have a different view or experience or take on something than you? So it went beyond a lot of that, what people see in other countries of the sort of infighting. It was really much more of a, an environment in which I felt a, a daughter or a son who, who I wanted to do something positive and good in the world didn't have those examples. And so for us, it was pretty clear that if you want your kid to do good, your child has to see good. And certainly we could provide that. Certainly our friends could provide that. But I think it's unhealthy to live in a silo. You know, we didn't want to be in a position where we had to be seeking out people who thought like we did, who believed like we did, who hoped like we did. That's not a realistic society. Um, and so Canada, yes, was obvious because of its proximity, but also once we started looking at Canada, and then once I took the bar exam here and really started reading about the sort of foundation of the country and how 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 Ontario itself, you know, in Toronto, once you begin to learn the fundamentals of this society, of this legal system, which clearly undergirds the way society operates, you understand it's vastly different. And it, look, it's not perfect. We recognize that there are problems here, many of which mirror those in the U.S., many of which I think the U.S. has infected Canada with. But I think on a global scale, there is a better sense sense of civic responsibility, uh, of leadership, generally speaking, um, and a real uh, appreciation and respect for difference. Not always perfect, but overall, I think you see that here. And we got a sense that that might be the case. And so for us, we really needed to make that move so that we could be raising a kid who would be a positive uh, force and, and a true global citizen who understood her connection to other people in the world. I agree. That's a, I appreciate that 110% because I felt the same way when my husband and I made our decision. And I think it's hard to explain to Canadians, unless you're an outsider and you come here, um, just how divided America is right now yes. and how it's almost impossible to have meaningful conversations about complex issues without yes. having yeah, heated rhetoric and division. Um, I'm curious, because you are the parents of a school-aged child, the issue of gun control and gun safety factor into your decision at all? Well, let me say this. I'll start because I think for me, it's, it's been uh, more acute um, than, than David. When we left the States, we had no idea how much background anxiety we had about guns. I didn't realize that until I didn't have it. 
When we crossed back into the state soon after the Buffalo shooting, um, the horrible grocery store shooting, uh, that was the first time we crossed back over af after one of the, look, there's so many shootings, right? Like after one of the bigger <laughs> mass shootings, I immediately felt less safe. And I also recognized that when I sent my child to school here, I didn't think for a second about her safety as it relates to guns. But even the thought of enrolling her in school in the U.S. really gave me heart palpitations. I am not making that up. When I thought about that reality, I was there's just no way I could do that. You don't realize when you're American that that's constantly there. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's like fish don't know the swimming in water, right? The same type of thing. Um, so while I would say that didn't factor into our decision, um, sort of brightly. I think part of it was there, but now that we are here and we've been here for um, coming up on two years, I think we recognize how much healthier our society is when everywhere you look, somebody doesn't own a gun. Yeah, I agree. Would you agree with that, David? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't think that entered into our decision-making at all in any overt way, um, but you're right. And, and, you know, the school shootings have just sort of continued and escalated really. Uh, so, you know, in the two years we've been here, almost two years, uh, what, there have been another half dozen or, you know, 10? At least. Teams? Yeah. And, and so it, it's become even more uh, of, of a contrast for us. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think um, that that's not a, a, wasn't a motivator, but it certainly is a reason for us to stay. Yeah, you both mentioned something that caught my ear. You both mentioned that it, there are similarities between Canada and the U.S. and many differences, right? or it's vastly different. So I'm curious your take on, I guess I'll start with Sonia, because you used the phrase vastly different. What strikes you as so vastly different between the two? Well, I think I could probably put that into a couple of different buckets. I mean, one is from a, um, a social standpoint, uh, the way that society operates. I think there is a, uh, a general concern and respect for other people, a recognition that you might not look like me, uh, believe like me, be from the same place as me, but yet you still deserve the same amount of um, of respect and recognition as I do. I think that's a, a, a fundamental. Now, part of that, I think, in Toronto may be different than other places, right? Because this is a multicultural city, constant influx of immigrants from all over the world. And I recognize that might have a difference here. But even when you look at something like the healthcare system, which I understand <laughs> needs some help, needs some funding, but you know, COVID was a good example of how in a community where everyone depends on one healthcare system, they do need to think about other people in a way that in the U.S., for instance, you know, that really illuminated the divide between the haves and the have-nots. I think that there was such a lack of concern for other people. I mean, maybe we had a month where people cared about other people, maybe. And that went away very quickly when, when all of these restrictions were starting to impinge on someone's personal freedom. So I think from a social standpoint, um, there's just this general um, respect for other people. Uh, from a, a legal standpoint, because I'm practicing law up here now, I think that, that you know, Dave and I've talked about this a lot in a, a number of cases, you know, Americans have this aggressiveness, assertiveness about us. Let me say assertive. I think aggressive is probably a little too pejorative, but this sense that 
if something is not right, I'm going to fix it. There's got to be a way to make this right. Um, or or something doesn't, um, this isn't what I want for my client. What are my options? You know, and also, uh, particularly in the criminal world, there is a huge deference towards authority and police here. And certainly where we come from and the work that we do in the States, it's not that we don't respect or um, have a, a certain level of deference to authority and, and the police and law enforcement, but we are certainly willing to question the bounds of that authority. We are willing to question whether a rule makes sense. We are certainly uh, willing to call out when something is wrong um, and when it needs to be righted. And so I think within the criminal legal system here, what I have found is a reticence that you don't find quite as much in the States. Um, I'm sure there's a, a happy medium there, uh, but it is interesting that there tends to be, I think, less um, assertive, aggressive type litigation here. David? Um, well, yeah, I think uh, for me, just focusing on society for a second, as opposed to the legal system, um, I think the, the most stunning thing to me was how many different cultures coexist without being swallowed up into some, you know, uh, vast uh, one system, you know, and, and that was illustrated for me early on when we were talking about uh, you know, what, what's different between Canada and the United States and, and a, a woman from Pakistan, uh, who's an immigrant here in Canada said that, you know, from her perspective, uh, U.S. viewed itself as a melting pot, you know, and if you think about a melting pot, people come in and they lose their identity and they all get sort of mushed together in a stew where you really can't see the differences anymore. Whereas in Canada, she said, it's more like a mosaic. Uh, and uh, everybody retains their own uh, identity, if you will, their, their native names, their native dress. Uh, they're not trying to assimilate into a particular culture. Uh, they're bringing their culture with them. Uh, and, and it's all working because it's a, it's, it's a mosaic. And the mosaic is very beautiful. So that, for me, really sort of summed up uh, the fundamental difference in attitude, if you will, between the U.S. and Canada when it comes to society. The second thing I noticed when I got up here was that everybody believed in the common good or virtually everybody. Yeah. So, you know, um, and it's sort of a it's sort of a inherent in, in Canadians, I think, that, you know, the common good is something that that everybody needs to think about and, and, and you know, strive for. Uh, and so you get on the subway in the middle of the uh, pandemic uh, and there wasn't anybody who wasn't wearing a mask. You know, I mean, you, you went into a supermarket, there wasn't anybody who wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, and in the United States at that point in time, nobody was wearing masks anymore in the, in the supermarkets, even though they were supposed to. Because it was did, all about individual <laughs> liberty as opposed, to, as opposed to the common good. And so for me, that, that was a really fundamental uh, difference in outlook, if you will, uh, between the two cultures. Now, in terms of the legal system, I think Sonia has been uh, very gentle uh, in, in her description of the differences. Um, uh, I would go further, uh, and I would say uh, that... Uh, Canadian lawyers seem unwilling, uh, generally speaking, obviously there are exceptions, to take 
risks to to speak out, uh, to speak truth to power. Um, uh, you know, and and of course it's not true of everybody, but just as a general rule, um, you know, and I know you want to talk about um, civil rights litigation and and uh, litigation about police misconduct and and wrongful convictions, and and we'll get to that. But I think that's a great illustration of the differences. You know, it's not just that that we're willing to do it. We want to do it. You know, we we want to take on abuses of power. It's not that we're just willing to take on abuses of power. We want to take on abuses of power. We want to try to change things. We want to try to make things right. And I think, uh, you know, I'll say it kindly. I just think there's a lot more res- reticence among most Canadian lawyers to do that, uh, now, you know. Can I ask you this though, is it not the architecture of the systems in some regard? For example, uh, I had the opportunity to study with Erwin Chemerinsky at Duke who yes. taught an entire class on using section 1983 litigation, which is a, a construct of the US code for our Canadian listeners where you can bring constitu- you know, suits for damages under the constitution to, to effectuate change. Right. I mean, that's an entire practice area, as you and Sonia both know and engage in. And the view is we are using litigation to to alter the architecture and the structure and the power system. And I I wonder if some of that exists because in the states also you don't have a cost based system right here. It's a loser pay system. Absolutely. I I think I think that's exactly right. And and I've talked about that with with Canadian litigators uh, who are shocked uh, that in the United States, you can sue and the other side runs up hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills uh, and you're not responsible. I mean, they're, they're absolutely uh, gobsmacked, by, gobsmacked by that. Um, and so, yes, I think I think that is a very fundamental difference. Uh, and, you know, uh, it discourages um, innovative litigation. It discourages um, the kind of litigation that can really cause change. I mean, you know, would, uh, you know, would uh, Miranda have been litigated in Canada, uh, where if Miranda didn't win, he was going to have to be charged with the costs of defending that suit. Uh, you no, know, or, or Gideon, or Gideon for that matter. I mean, the lawyer who, who litigated Gideon, which established for your Canadian listeners, the right of counsel in the United States for anybody charged with a, at least a felony. Um, that was a totally you know, sort of made up construct. I mean, it was made up in the sense it was based on the constitution, uh, but no one had ever litigated that before. Uh, and boom, you know, all of a sudden uh, some lawyer takes it on and goes to the Supreme Court. And now the entire legal system in the United States has to provide counsel for indigent people uh, in criminal cases. I don't know that that case would have been brought in Canada. Yeah, I think the difference though, to be fair to the Canadians, and I do wish we had a, a, a you know Canadian trained lawyer here, but I'm sure they'll chime in in comments or questions is, you know, there is a system here that's more welcoming to class action litigation. And so you do tend to see some civil rights litigation through class action suits, as opposed to the United States, which is incredibly hostile to class actions. Right. But I, I still agree with you that I, I view the US often lawyers, you know, litigation is seen as another tool to effectuate public policy, right? Not just writing laws and lobbying. 
and I'm not, I, I don't sense that as much here in my, you know, two and a half years of practice and reading and, and seeing that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 I do think that there probably is something in between the two that is the best. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, and, and, you know, I think you're right. There are just other ways to go about trying to do the same thing. Um, you know, there's this concept, David, the POG, <laughs> peace, order and good government. And, and that is, um, you know, that's used uh, in, in many different ways in the Canadian legal system. I, I think in some ways it like discourages the innovation we're trying to think about because it's like you could just rely upon it for whatever uh, sort of safekeeping mechanism is in place. Um, but I also think that for us, it's probably a little too early in our experience to know exactly how you be creative. You know, we there are people who have been practicing here who probably, you know, believe just as strongly as we do in bumping up against the powers that be. And they have been working through the construct as it exists, finding ways to be creative. I think that's what a good lawyer does, right? You operate within a system and you figure out how, how do I create opportunities for change? And I'm not sure that we know well enough um, what those opportunities are, but I just think from our limited experience, there is that that reticence exists. But um, you know, certainly there are change makers because you you see things happening, um, you know, here that that might not happen in the United States. If you look at in, you know indigenous uh, populations and how how that how how that has uh, been treated very differently than in the United States. But there's in your head as I talk. <laughs> well, but that's not the result of litigation. That's the result of legislation and lobbying and public policy, all of which is great. I, you know, I am not, I'm not denigrating that in the least. But the question was, how is the Canadian legal system different than the system in the U.S.? Uh, and yeah, I, I, I guarantee you that there are great lawyers in Canada who have figured out ways to to uh, manage in the system that exists. Uh, but it's much, much harder to create, I think, uh, to create change here through litigation than it is in the United States. Uh, I, I just think that's a reality. Well, I think Jennifer will have on some lawyers who focus on indigenous rights and law to, to counteract you there. But oh, we can set right. that aside. <laughs> you know, one, one thing that I was struck too, though, is I, I had the opportunity to study constitutional law and criminal law, you know, sitting for the bar and then practicing it is also, again, it has a double edge to it. As an American, I see it as a double edge. The high regard for individual privacy rights, incredibly high regard, right? And the protections afforded to them, uh, even under search and seizure. But then the converse of that is I look at the American system and the access to public records that one has. And I'll just take for an example, the recent, um, for lack of a better term, events with the Supreme Court justice up here that occurred in Arizona and the events that unfolded would not have been as accessible to the public or press had they occurred here in Canada because all that information is typically cloaked until it's entered into court. And it's just an interesting dichotomy to me sometimes when I look at this country that prizes individual privacy and also sort of general bodily autonomy, whether it be the, the right to choose how you end your life, choose, you know, the, I guess, you know, the, the right to choice, whether you gamble, whether you take marijuana, all these other things. But then when it comes to public records, it's more cloaked. And I was just curious if you guys had any thoughts on that. 
Well, I find it very frustrating. I actually have a civil suit right now where there's a, a component um, here in Canada where there's a component that involves an administrative hearing. And the Police Services Act says that the documents from that can't be subpoenaed in the civil case. And it is wholly relevant. <laughs> but, you know, so that is very frustrating to me. And of course, the other side, I don't think is going to want to let go of those records. And then it's like, well, how do you litigate that? And you have this sort of, there are certain things that are okay, like the results, we'll share the results, but we're not going to share the process. Um, I do find it very frustrating. But as you said, it is it is a double-edged sword. I mean, in many ways, when you look at the access to people's information in the states, it's shocking. And, um, and obviously not always um, help, helpful or healthy, but yeah, look, I don't know what to say about that, except that it's a huge challenge when you're used to getting records. <laughs> An injustice is something that does not comport with reality or morality. There was significant mishandling of the evidence during the crime scene search. When the police first got to the scene, what they're supposed to do is put a perimeter up and have very controlled access into the scene so that none of the evidence is in any way tampered with, even accidentally. They didn't do that. It was really amateur hour. For example, bloody clothing weren't put in separate bags. So it wasn't so much DNA evidence that they were screwing up. It was blood evidence. David, and I was wondering, this actually is a good opportunity because Sonia mentioned her practice, and if both of you could tell us, the listeners, a little bit about where you practice law now in Canada and, and what your practice looks like. Sure. Well, uh, I'll start off. Um, we both practice uh, with a law firm here in, in Toronto, uh, Rowdy Thorning, uh, which uh, has a very strong uh, emphasis on criminal defense work. Uh, but also has a family law section, which Sonia is working in uh, and does some business litigation. Uh, it's a, a firm of about somewhere between uh, 25 and 30 lawyers, depending on when you count them. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, I've been working uh, primarily as a consultant. Uh, I am not barred up here. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I sort of... Uh, consult with the lawyers at the firm about strategy and tactics and uh, help them uh, draft things. You know, uh, uh, our civil complaints in the United States are very different than, oh, yeah. than the civil complaints that are drafted up here. Uh, and so uh, I've been trying to understand the difference between, uh, what is it, uh, material facts and, uh, uh, and uh, 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 I forget what the other thing is, but it, I couldn't ever figure out the difference between what you're allowed to put in a pleading here and what you're not supposed to put in a pleading here. In the United States, uh, you know, our complaints run 30, 40 pages uh, and contain enormous detail. Uh, we no longer have notice pleading in the United States. We have we have uh, storytelling pleading. Um, and so, um, you know, I've, I've worked on on some of that where we, we sort of uh, come to a happy medium between what the uh, Canadian approach would be and what uh, our approach would be in the United States. Um, and uh, I've done that on civil cases. I've done it on, on some criminal cases. Uh, I've worked on, uh, I'm working right now on an inquest, uh, just so, you know, where you don't have to be a lawyer. Uh, and uh, on some police uh, disciplinary cases, uh, again, where you don't have to be a lawyer to represent uh, the, the defendant uh, in, or the respondent in those cases, 
I've done those. So that's been my practice. Uh, and of course, at the same time, we're balancing our practice in the United States, which, uh, which is, you know, not a high volume practice at all, but it, it involves uh, a fair number of uh, very significant civil litigation. I was going to add, you know, when you mentioned the criminal proceedings here, the, the other difference that's stunning to a criminal practitioner from the United States is the robust disclosure process that's out here. And my colleagues are often stunned when I explain that, you know, even in Texas up until about 2014, your witness would take the, the state's witness would take the stand, testify, and then you'd get their prior statements after their direct testimony handed to you in, in court, you know, which is just unheard of here. So, yeah. you know, I appreciate the open disclosure here for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, it wasn't that different for us because in North Carolina, we've had uh, open file discovery for, I guess, since 2009 or 10. So, so that wasn't as big a, a dram as dramatic a change. Of course, in the federal system, uh, it's a little bit better uh, than getting it after a witness testifies, depending on where you are. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there, there's much more disclosure here. On the other hand, if we're talking about shocking uh, things, uh, I've read transcripts of interrogations where somebody has asked to talk to their lawyer 33 times uh, and, and it's ignored. Uh, you know, just, uh, I mean, it blows me away that... Uh, uh, if you ask for a lawyer, the police don't have to respect that. Uh, so um, there's lots there's lots of differences between the systems. I will add, just also for the listeners, um, the key is also you actually got a transcript as opposed to an FBI agent's 302 notes of an interview, right? You well, know, that, that, that's true. That's Which that's is far true. better because the FBI notes rarely reflect the 302. If you ever get the notes, suddenly it's a whole other story with exculpatory information that somehow didn't find its way into the 302. <laughs> well, it, well and, and there's always a vast difference between the 302 and what actually happened if you had a That's what I'm saying is the notes, the yeah. notes will reflect what actually happened. Yeah, but the notes but, aren't a transcript. I mean, it's even better if you have the transcript, I yeah, think. for sure. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, Sonia, what does your practice look like in Canada? And we'll get to yeah, the U.S. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a tiny bit of crim. I have um, working on one criminal case with uh, one of the partners, and then the family law section at Brody Thorning is a, a pretty um, big section, a litigation section of the firm, and they have a number of of high conflict cases. So I'm working on those, which a lot of people have asked me, like, "How are you doing family after doing criminal?" I'm like, actually. <laughs> You know, when you're when you've represented people who are on trial for their life or their liberty, like suddenly the stress is less in these um, you know family law cases. And I'm I'm used to drama. I'm used to conflict. I'm used to heartache. I'm used to having to to recognize, empathize, um, and share with my client and what they're they're going through. But also sort of separate it out and and help them find some space, which is like here's the law, here's the rules, here's how we're going to work it out. Um, and in a lot of these high conflict cases, of course, there's all sorts of valuations you have to figure out. And from doing, you know, white collar cases in the States, I'm not scared to look at a lot of numbers and documents. And so there's pieces of that, but, um, but it's good. And it's also, you know, it's litigation. So I get it. Um, you know, do questioning and drafting of, um, you know, applications and motions and affidavits and that kind of thing. So it's, um, 
you know, it's certainly keeping me busy. And then uh, I also taught a trial ad at U of T this year and last year, and David taught at U of T last year. So we also got to work with some students, which was fun. It's always fun to remember what it was like when you started and you're doing your first cross-examination and you can barely get your words out. And even you're, you're trying to ask closed questions, but you end up not doing it in any way. So um, it's been a mix of things. I was going to say the one thing that is, I think the same between both countries is that enthusiasm that young lawyers bring when they're in law school or right out of everything's cool to do. They can't <laughs> believe this is happening. Can they just sit in and watch and just, you know, I, it's always a great reminder when you're in the daily grind to have students in the office because it's just it, to me, it's like, you know, a ray of sunshine. Um, yes. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, no, we, we have an articling student who works with our family law team and it, it is fun, you know, because yeah. every you're exactly right. Everything is exciting. I'm like, this is the case conference, you know, but it's like, oh, can I come? It's <laughs> great. It's great. Uh, so you both mentioned your U.S. practice. Um, could you tell tell us about the, the firm in Charlotte and you did you both start it or did you start it with other practitioners and yeah, the focus areas of it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start because I started the firm. Signage uh, <laughs> uh, a little bit later. Um, but, <laughs> I, you know, I went to North Carolina to teach uh, at uh, the Uni University of North Carolina Law School. And I, I was on the full-time faculty there for four years. Uh, and uh, I just decided that uh, being a law professor was not the life that I really wanted to leave, lead and uh, didn't really... Uh, excite me. So uh, in 1982, uh, I started a law firm uh, with my counterpart from Duke, Don Beskin, who you may know. Uh, um, and uh, so we started a firm. Uh, our original offices were in Durham. Uh, and uh, it sort of went from there. Don and I practiced together for 10 years uh, till 92. Uh, he did civil litigation. I did criminal litigation. Uh, and then uh, uh, he broke off to join a, a, a personal injury firm. Uh, I continued on uh, with a, a former student of ours uh, at, at UNC. Uh, and I continued doing criminal work uh, really until um, uh, early, really until right after the staircase trial, uh, which ended in 2003. Uh, and after that, my, my practice focus shifted uh, to doing wrongful conviction litigation, which for your Canadian lawyer listeners um, really involves when somebody is exonerated uh, in the United States, when a conviction is overturned and the uh, prosecution, the Crown, uh, dismisses the case and decides not to proceed. Uh, if there was any sort of police misconduct, uh, whether it was uh, fabricating uh, uh, confessions or hiding exculpatory evidence uh, or uh, creating junk science, uh, uh, if there's any of that, uh, then under the, under the Civil Rights Act, uh, which you mentioned earlier, Section 1983, uh, you can sue uh, for the violation of your civil rights. Uh, and so uh, I, I really got involved in that sort of litigation starting in about 2005. Uh, and that's pretty much what the firm has evolved into now. That's pretty much what we do. Uh, we have five lawyers total, uh, actually six now. Um, uh, and uh, 
pretty much, yeah, some of the lawyers do post-conviction work. Uh, you know, some of the lawyers have, have other uh, uh, areas of expertise, but for the most part, the firm is focused on wrongful conviction litigation, uh, which is not something, interestingly enough, that has uh, uh, seemed to blossom in Canada, although in some ways the, 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 uh, the burden is less because all you have to show in Canada is negligence. Whereas in the United States, you have to show sort of willful or intentional or reckless misconduct. Um, so the, the burden is less, but for some reason, uh, those cases have not been litigated, I don't think, very much in Canada. There's certainly not a robust, um, you know, uh, uh, charter uh, violation practice, which would be the equivalent of a constitutional practice uh, that I'm aware of, although I think there are some lawyers who are doing that. Uh, and so uh, I, th I think that's an underutilized uh, area in Canada that I'd certainly like to see uh, develop. And, uh, and indeed, you know, with the, with the new commission that's coming into effect, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more cases where uh, there's going to be identification of, of people who have been wrongfully convicted. Uh, and oftentimes it's the result of some sort of misconduct, whether it's negligence or whether it's intentional, uh, and people ought to be compensated, uh, just like if a police officer runs them down in the, in the highway. Uh, you know, uh, there's no reason why people shouldn't be compensated if they're run down in the legal system. Could I ask a, a couple of follow-up questions, but I guess the first is, could either of you or, or you, David, if you're only involved, talk a bit about what the commission is and what your work with it so far? You, you referenced the commission's well, uh, up here, it's just starting. And so I haven't done anything with it, although that's certainly something that I'm interested in pursuing. If, uh, if there's some way that I can assist uh, that new commission, and it has a very long name, uh, I would call it the, the Wrongful Conviction uh, Commission, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's broader than that. Uh, and it, it, it really deals with, uh, I think, uh, not just how the how the system came out, not just whether somebody was actually innocent, but whether the process itself was flawed. Um, uh, and so uh, I think it's a little bit broader than the, for example, in North Carolina, we have an innocence commission, uh, which actually uh, litigates cases and finds people are actually innocent. Uh, and we've handled a number of cases after that process. So uh, in terms of the Canadian system, it's just getting started. Uh, uh, I've talked with some people who uh, have involvement in that. Uh, it's something that I very much would like to uh, participate in, and if if I can be useful, I do have the experience from North Carolina, which has a uh, sort of first in the uh, U.S. Uh, system uh, to root out wrongful convictions, uh, and uh, and that's certainly something that I want to pursue up in Canada. I also, you know, I would I would love to be consulting with Canadian lawyers who uh, have represented people who have been exonerated uh, and uh, talk with them about what are, the, what are the options for helping those people get back on their feet uh, you know, after they're exonerated, because that's just the first step. I mean, you know, I, I've got clients now, Sonia and I have clients who have been in for 45 years uh, uh, and, and they're, you know, they're exonerated and they come out and the world is an entirely different place. Uh, and and they have a 45 year hole, uh, hole in their resume, uh, and uh, you know they're not getting hired, uh, assuming they're even able to work. 
So, you know, I think there's a real need for that in the United States. And I, I presume there's, there's a need for that in Canada as well. Uh, could you explain also, you or Sonia, for the listeners too, what a fine, um, fine pin it is that you're litigating on? Because this idea of exoneration is, I guess, one, explain for the listener the concept, because it's not just you got the charges dismissed. And it's not that you eventually got sprung early. I mean, it's it's you are you are found actually innocent, and the charges. Please correct me if I'm wrong, and and go. I guess a bit of a background and explanation. Yeah, no, actually, uh, you don't have to establish your actual innocence, although mm-hmm. that's what the commission in North Carolina does. It does actually vote to find somebody actually innocent, uh, but in order to sue. Uh, you just have to be, the, the, the charges have to be dismissed uh, on the merits. Uh, and so um, uh, you don't have to establish, there's no affirmative burden of showing that you were innocent. Uh, once, once the charges have been dismissed, uh, even after a conviction, so you're convicted and then you appeal and the appeal is successful, Uh, and a case comes back down to the trial court level and the prosecutor chooses not to proceed, that's sufficient to enable you to sue. Now, whether whether you're successful, that's a whole different story because there's there's all kinds of immunities that exist for police officers, for prosecutors, for judges. Um, So, uh, you know, it's not an open field by any means. Uh, But uh, it, it it is something where you can obtain, and we have obtained, significant compensation, uh, you know, millions of dollars of compensation for people who have been wrongfully convicted and served decades in prison. Jennifer, let me just give a little bit of background, sort of like procedural background. So the way that we get cases in the States, there are a few ways. One, David mentioned the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. That is similar to the commission being founded in Canada now. And and in North Carolina, if you go through that commission process and you are found to be innocent, then you might have a case where we would look at it to see if during the uh, prosecution or in the investigation of your case, there was some uh, misconduct that rose to the level of a violation of your right to a fair trial. So you might be found innocent by the commission. And then that's one way for us to look at your case to see if you have a civil claim. Another way is through the Innocence Projects, Duke, you know, or North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill. They get lots of inquiries from inmates who say they're innocent. They investigate the cases. They file what's called a motion for appropriate relief, asking a court to look at new evidence or something that, um, you know, whatever the case may be, something that indicates this person did not get a fair trial. There could be a ruling, the trial wasn't fair. Now the charges go back to the district attorney and the district attorney decides, that would be the Crown, whether to try the person again or dismiss the case. Usually they dismiss the case because what you found is the person is most likely innocent or in fact innocent. After that, someone has the option, um, and also after the Innocence Inquiry Commission, of petitioning the governor for a pardon of innocence. And that is sort of another route to establish your innocence. You don't have to have that. That's what David's talking about. You don't have to have a pardon of innocence or a finding by the Innocence Inquiry Commission to have a 1983 suit, to say that my, my right to a fair trial was violated. It certainly helps. 
Um, both of them, I would say not so much the commission, but a little bit, you know, the, the pardon process can be a little political, you know, that there are governors who might not want to be issuing pardons because people are going to think that they're quote soft on crime. Uh, you know, there are other governors who are a little more, um, you know, strong headed about it and will just do what they think is right. But the cases that come to us, it's after a person has been let out of prison. There's a, a final decision about their trial, that it was not a fair trial. They will not be retried. Maybe they have a pardon of innocence. Maybe they were found innocent by the Innocence Inquiry Commission. Maybe they have absolutely nothing, just this finding that the case was dismissed and they can move forward. And, and just to put a finer point on that, whether the person is innocent or not is not the the point of civil rights litigation. The point of civil rights litigation is, did the person, as Sonia put it, receive a fair trial or was the criminal process fair in their case? That is a separate question from whether or not they are innocent. A lot of times the, the fact that the process was not fair results in a wrongful conviction, a, a conviction where the person was actually innocent. But that's not the that's not the purpose of the litigation. The purpose of the litigation is to vindicate your constitutional right. Long do some of these suits take to litigate? What is uh, obviously everyone is different, of course, but what is the uh, life? I would say uh, anywhere from a year and a half. Well, during COVID, obviously nothing happened. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say a year and a half to three years, you know, from start to finish. And I think probably the a two-year time frame is, is probably the most likely time frame. You both have backgrounds or you you commenced your careers as public defenders. Do you do you find that that is grind grounding in the work you do now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think public defenders are the backbone of the criminal legal system and, and anyone who works in it will tell you the same thing. Um, you know, I was a, a journalist or reporter for 12 years before I was a lawyer. So I had uh, some sense of injustice in the world and the criminal legal system, but not until you're a public defender. Do you really understand why things like vindicating your right to a fair trial is so important? Why it isn't just about innocence? Because these things impact everybody on a trickle down scale. Um, and, you know, being a public defender, you not only get the experience by trying cases, by dealing with any number of, of um, charges and crimes, but you understand the system in a fundamental way. You understand how uh, investigations go. You understand why investigations start. You have a sense of when they go off the rails, of when somebody's tunnel vision, you know, clicks in and then how the confirmation bias covers everything. You know how a district attorney's office works. You understand what information she or he is looking at before going to trial. Um, you know, you understand sentencing, you understand punishment, you understand mitigation. And these are things that are, I think are fundamental in the civil rights cases, because if you set aside the legal part, which is complicated enough on its own. You're dealing with a human being who has com been completely railroaded by the system, who has been cut off from their family, from their friends, from the world as the world has developed around them. I mean, David mentioned the client we have now who was in for almost 45 years. I mean, that is almost my entire lifetime. And to, to work with someone who has had that experience, and have no understanding of the system that did that to them, I think is a disservice to that person. So on a personal level, on just a sort of fundamental understanding level, I think it is helpful to both of us for knowing what this person has been through from a systemic 
point of view. And then also from an, a case approach, we understand that criminal process. These civil rights cases, I always call them quasi-criminal. You are going back in time and you're looking at an investigation. You're looking at a prosecution. You're trying to analyze, did something go wrong? How are you supposed to analyze that if you don't really understand the system inside and out? So I, I think it's, it's critical to um, the work that we do now. And I mean, you know, frankly, as a human being, I think it's the greatest work there is. You know, you you are representing this individual in front of a behemoth of power, um, and and you know it's it's in your hands to to protect them, to fight for them, uh, to be their voice. Because heaven knows you don't have a voice. Um, so it's I, I just it probably is the greatest job I've ever had. What is a reasonable expectation of privacy in the digital age? Search and Seizure, Iman's latest addition to the award-winning criminal law series, explores key concerns around digital search and seizure powers, including 487 search warrants, internet search history, warrantless searches, and exclusion of evidence. With practice tips from both a Crown and defense perspective, this 800-page comprehensive guide analyzes viewpoints of right holders, police officers, and judges reviewing police conduct. With well-respected authors Nader Hassan, Mabel Lai, David Sherbrooker, and Randy Schwartz, this practical handbook is bound to become a must-have resource for defense, crown, and judiciary. To get your copy today, visit iman.ca slash llp-ss and enter promo code LAWYERSLOUNGE for 10% off. Again, that's iman.ca slash llp-ss promo code LAWYERSLOUNGE for 10% off your copy of Search and Seizure. The L theory is a ridiculous theory. When you first hear it, you really have to get into the evidence in order to understand that it was actually possible for an owl to do this. Nobody thought of an owl at that time. Everybody just rushed to judgment and thought that this was a murder. David, one, one question I wanted to ask you in particular, I'd read an interview where you talked about, and we briefly mentioned the staircase case, but your representation of Michael Peterson in 2003, who was accused of murdering his wife, Kathleen Peterson, back in 2001. And this was a case, and please correct me, it consumed your life and your career for the better part of a, a decade or, or more? Well, a, little, a little bit longer than that, actually. A, okay. decade, a decade and a half. Okay, so 15 years, yeah. But, but what came out of it was this 2018, what came out of it were many things, but one of which was a 2018 series that just exploded on Netflix called The Staircase. And then for you, many speaking opportunities, which I've heard you describe that you use the opportunity to discuss about inherent flaws in the criminal justice system, whether it be United States or across the English speaking world. Um, and I, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about what you, you see as these inherent flaws and, and you know, what, what you've spoken about as far as fixing them or remedying them. Yeah, and, and you know, the staircase and that Netflix documentary really uh, opened my eyes to uh, how uh, we can advocate uh, for fairness in the system beyond being in front of a jury uh, of 12 people in the United States. Uh, because all of a sudden, I was, I was speaking to audiences from anywhere from, you know, 300 to 3,000 people uh, about uh, the problems in the criminal justice system. Uh, so 
and Son and I have sort of uh, built on that, I think. Uh, we have a podcast now, which maybe we'll talk about later. Uh, don't want to compete with your podcast, but... <laughs> no, it's all part of the collective good, so it's, it's fun. <laughs> but, but we do have a podcast. Uh, I've written a book, uh, which uh, was published uh, uh, a year ago, and it's now in paperback, uh, about the problems in the criminal justice system in the United States. Uh, and I think the problems do exist across the English-speaking world in different ways, and you know, and, and in different flavors, if you will. Uh, but you know, the the bottom line is that the problem is that um, detectives and prosecutors, uh, you know, the Crown, whether a DA, they're not really trained in the issues of confirmation bias. Uh, and, you know, uh, medical students, when they, when they are being trained, uh, they're trained to have to go through a, a process called differential diagnosis, um, where, you know, somebody comes into an emergency room, you don't just immediately diagnose them as the, with the most obvious uh, diagnosis. What you have to do, if you're doing it properly, is you have to rule out every other reasonable hypothesis before you reach your diagnosis. That's what a, a differential diagnosis is. Uh, and so the, the purpose of that, and it's not perfect, but the pur purpose of that is to resist confirmation bias. Somebody comes in with a pain in their stomach. You don't just assume that it's uh, indigestion because it could be a heart attack. Uh, and so you have to rule things out. And, and so you do whatever testing is needed to rule things out. Police detectives and prosecutors are not trained in that. They're not sensitized to that. And so, you know, what will happen uh, everywhere? Uh, it, it certainly happens in, in Canada. I've seen it. Uh, it certainly has happened in Great Britain and Ireland, uh, you know, especially during the Troubles in Ireland. Uh, and, uh, and, and it certainly happens in, uh, in Scotland uh, is... You, the police have a, have a theory about what happened here. Uh, you know, a, a wife is murdered uh, and the husband was having an affair. Aha, the husband is the guilty party. And so at that point, what happens is it doesn't become an evidence-based invest investigation. It is a suspect-based investigation. Uh, you know, what the police are trying to do is not figure out what happened, but how they can prove their theory, uh, you know, how they entered the case. Uh, and, and that leads to all kinds of problems. So, you know, because especially in cases where somebody is innocent, there's not going to be evidence of guilt. Guess what? You know, somebody's innocent. Now the police think they're guilty. Well, they're not coming up with evidence to prove it. So now there's a, there's a tremendous incentive uh, to go to the ends justifying the means. You know, we don't want to let this person get away with it just because there's no evidence of guilt when we know they're guilty. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to put a lot of pressure on somebody to uh, make a statement against them, you know, or we're going to offer somebody a deal in another case to testify that this person said something to them in jail that was incriminatory. Or we're going to go get, uh, you know, junk science uh, to show that bloodstain pattern uh, proves the person is, is guilty. And, and it goes on and on and on. 
So that's what I see as the fundamental flaw. It's not, it's not so much the, uh, how it is manifested, it's what causes it. And what causes it is just human nature. And, and that's true whether you're in Canada or the United States or Great Britain or wherever you are. And so that's what I see as, as the, the major problem. Uh, and, and I think, you know, really uh, in a lot of ways, the answer is simply better training uh, for the people who have to make these decisions. And so they, it's not going to eliminate confirmation bias and tunnel vision, uh, but it's certainly going to sensitize them to it and, and perhaps make it less likely that it's going to happen. Have you noticed, whether it be in the U.S. or Canada, any um, police departments or, or other law enforcement units picking up on that remedy or offering similar training? I mean, yeah. Well, you know, what's happened in a lot of uh, prosecutors' offices in the United States uh, is the the uh, establishment of conviction integrity units. Right. So, so now uh, in, in a number of jurisdictions, uh, the prosecutors' offices themselves have uh, a unit that is designed to investigate how cases went off the rails. Um, and and to right wrongs that they find exist, which is great, and 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 I encourage that and applaud that. Uh, but I think the next step is to take those findings uh, and to apply them more broadly. It's not just how did this case go wrong, but how do we prevent this type of error from happening again? It's sort of like the purpose of an inquest uh, in Canada. Uh, and we don't have any similar system in the United States. I, we, I've represented people who, you know, who have been given $10 million in, in settlements and the police refuse to apologize. You know, there's, there's a standard clause in the, in the settlement agreement. The, we don't admit liability. Uh, you're going to give you $10 million uh, for what we did to you, but we don't admit any liability. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, when there's no... When there's no reckoning, you know, in, in a hospital situation, if there's a, if there's a, a, a serious uh, error, there's a, a sentinel event review. Uh, and, and it's not designed to cast blame. Uh, it's the doctors all get together and they try to figure out what went wrong and how we could change whatever happened uh, in the future to avoid it. You know, when there's an airplane crash in the United States, you have the National Transportation Safety Board comes in and they do an analysis. It's not designed to, to blame the pilot. It's designed to figure out what went wrong and how can we change that. There's no similar process in the United States for addressing wrongful convictions. And, and I think that's a fundamental problem. Yeah, it is also, I think, another inherent difference, not that you know, this question was directed towards it, but between the two systems, I do find it uniquely Canadian that they are able to have an inquiry or a commission and look back at what happened. You know, one of my colleagues is on the Emergencies Act Commission, uh, she's litigating in that, and to look at and examine and to take testimony and to ask questions. Whereas I feel like in America, often the solution when there's a wrong is we litigate about it. But we don't often, in North Carolina, there's been one exception, I think, and it was with the Greensboro um, shootings of, with the Ku Klux Klan from the early, late 70s, early 80s with the Truth early and Reconciliation. Yeah. yeah, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but that's 
one of only a handful of things that I, I can see in the United States where we we sort of look inquisitively and we ask questions about it as opposed to litigating. Yes. Well, um, you can, and they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you can right. litigate uh, and then you can have an inquest. And, and, and uh, certainly that happens in the medical arena and it happens in the in the aviation field. You know, you have litigation, but then there's also a, an investigation, if you will, that is not related to the to the uh, litigation and indeed is not even discoverable in the litigation. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I think that's that's where it has to go. Uh, and and I'd love I'd love one. I'm working on a on an inquest right now in the Sammy Yatim uh, inquest. Uh, you know, it's a shooting death in in uh, Toronto, uh, and it's it's fascinating uh, to just watch. You know how this whole thing unfolds, and and the goal is to figure out. Uh, you know, for example, can we train officers better? Do we need to do a better job in how we select officers and how we screen officers and how we and how we follow their careers uh, to determine whether or not uh, they're likely uh, to engage in some sort of uh, uh, dangerous act. Uh, so it's very much a preventive process uh, and we have nothing like that in the United States. That's true, that's true. You mentioned something, so I wanna segue to this. You mentioned your podcast. Can you or Sonia speak about abuse of power and, and what you guys typically cover in the show's format and where we can listen to it? David, do you want me to take that? No, Sonia, you, you need to talk about the podcast. You're the star of the podcast. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I just know how to ask good questions. <laughs> um, so it's called Abuse of Power, and it's on Audible. Um, the the format actually changed from season one to seasons two and three. But I think the title explains sort of exactly what we are examining, which is abuses within the system. And it, it right now is the criminal legal system, although we certainly could talk about abuses in other systems. The first season, we essentially did a survey of what are various abuses within the system that lead to wrongful convictions, whether it's a coerced confession, whether it's using snitch testimony, whether it's, uh, you know, fake science, junk science. Um, in seasons two and three, we shifted and focused on one case and did more of a, a, a deep dive type narrative storytelling. Uh, the first one was about this extraordinary case that I can't believe we hadn't heard of, uh, Chris Maharaj in Florida, who is... Um, a, a UK Trinidadian businessman who's been who on death row in Florida, and I think maybe he's on life now, um, for decades uh, for something that it's pretty clear to me, it, this double homicide he had nothing to do with, but in fact, it was like Pablo Escobar and his people, kid you not, like it, it, it involves, you know, Colombia and all the drug cartels. So that was um, season two, and that really covered a variety of abuses of power. You know, one of the things we find in many of these cases when someone is trying to uh, fight for their freedom is the system loves finality. There's such a value on finality that somebody might have evidence that suggests innocence, but there will be some procedural reason why a judge decides that it shouldn't go forward or, or decides to look at just one piece of evidence rather than accumulative evidence that suggests innocence. Um, and in that case in particular, Chris Maharaj's case, it's really, um, it's really sickening actually how much evidence of innocence there is, but the procedural bars that have kept him in. And then season three is one of our cases, Charles Ray Finch, who served uh, 40 some years as well. What was, what was uh, Ray in for David? Do you remember 40? A, mur a, mur 
Uh, no, no, no. How long was he in? Oh, uh, 41. 41. 41. Um, and we tell his story. And that one is, uh, again, an extraordinary illustration of how power can corrupt, particularly in smaller communities. This is an Eastern North Carolina case. But, you know, in the way David talked about the speaking engagements that he had in the wake of the staircase on Netflix, we really look at the podcast in the same way and being on Audible and, and having a wider audience and the ability to educate people. I really think through storytelling, um, you can make an extraordinary impact. People get involved in the lives of the characters. They follow along with what's happening. And then when you recognize that this is not fiction, this is real, you end, I think, with the sense that you must do something. And so I, I think through the podcast, really I view it as yet another way to advocate, to educate, to suggest to people, this is your system. Uh, if this is not what you want, what can you do? And obviously, you know, that runs the gamut when we do interviews or when we talk about the podcast, when people say, well, what can people do? Sort of, aren't they helpless? The reality is there are simple things that you can do. And a lot of times in the States anyway, you know, we we elect our district attorneys and, um, and, you our know, people, and our judges, um, you know, but people overlook those races in the states, our sheriffs, right? Like, so, you know, I think we, we talk about how those who do not view themselves as engaged in the legal system can do things to impact the legal system, which again, like, you know, when I was talking about the differences between Canada and the U.S., your legal system undergirds society, right? So we all should care what happens in, in the system. So anyway, and, and look, it's also, you know, it's, I would say that it's fun too for David and I to work together because um, I get to exercise my old journalism chops and ask questions and sometimes poke a little fun at David and, <laughs> and everybody appreciates that. And he gets to, you know, uh, reflect on his decades of experience as a criminal defense lawyer. And, you know, that experience has extraordinary value in assessing these stories and answering questions and illuminating the issues. So it's been very enjoyable for us. And to serve as your pinata. <laughs> <laughs> David, so the polar opposite of hosting a podcast is, is likely writing a book, which can be an incredibly isolating experience. What prompted you to write American Injustice and, and how long did it take and what was that process like? Well, um, you know, it, it actually in my in my world is not all that different. Yes, the the the, the process of creating it is very different and, and much more isolating, if you will. Uh, but the goal is the same, which is to educate. Um, and so uh you know, looking back on my career, and, and this is not, let me just make clear, this is not an I'm a great lawyer book by any means. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but um, it, it really focuses on the victims of the abuse of power and how that abuse occurred and what impact it had on the people who it, uh, it uh, affected. I've, I was involved in a number of those cases, mostly post-conviction, uh, but it's, it's not about me. It's, it's, about, it's about the system and those people. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I had to go back into my cases. Uh, you know, some of, some of the book deals with cases from 1976 when I was a federal public defender in New York. Um, and, and then, you know, cases that, that occurred in North Carolina in the early 80s. Uh, and, and then cases, you know, going up to really uh the the present day um and so 
you know, we had to go back and dig into the files uh, and, and really research those cases and go beyond what was in my files uh, to, to uh, round out the stories. Uh, and, and that's the purpose of the book. And, you know, I've had a chance to talk about the book in various uh, uh, forums. Sonia and I uh, have, have uh, spoken a number of times to various bar groups, to law students, to, uh, you know, to other groups uh, of non-lawyers about some of the problems in the system. And it's all part of the same effort, which is let's not confine our advocacy to a courtroom. Uh, let's broaden it uh, and, and try to reach uh, more people in society. Uh, are you, when you went and spoke, did you speak internationally about the book or largely in the U.S.? Well, when I was when I was speaking internationally, it was it was really about the staircase and the lessons from the staircase. Uh, the book came out sort of in the middle of covid. Oh, right. And so uh, people weren't doing book tours at that point. Uh, but, I, but I but I did. I had a number of interviews uh, uh, with the media. Uh, interviewed on Good Morning America. I was, uh, you know, interviewed on various radio stations. Um, so uh, I did speak uh, about the book and about, you know, the lessons of the book then, but not, not in the sort of, uh, you know, uh, public forums that I did uh, after the staircase. Yeah, I get that. I do have to ask, so the last extracurricular activities before we move on to, to silly stuff. Um, Sonia, I felt like the most boring human ever when I read that in addition to being a mother, a lawyer, a successful, you know, speaking litigator, you also uh, run a art gallery in Charlotte. And I was just like, does she have time to sleep and breathe? And so uh, the elder gallery, how are you still involved with it? If you're time between the two and, and what does it feature contemporary? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, and actually, perfect segue, because I, I view it as yet another way to advocate, uh, to be frank. You know, art is is storytelling itself. Artists create in many ways to um, expose the viewer to their experience, to something that they have done or seen or, or what their daily life is like. I mean, sometimes, yes, it's a reflection, reflection of, of beauty or, you know, respite. But from my perspective, when I uh, bought this art gallery in 2017, I thought it was a great opportunity to use art as a vehicle for dialogue around the tough societal issues that, you know, were swirling at the time and continue to swirl now. I just, I think the more ways you can reach people, the better. So uh, yes, it is a contemporary art gallery. And, uh, you know, when I entered into this, I wasn't sure even what the difference between like modern art and contemporary art was. So for listeners who are like, what is the difference? You know, contemporary art, it's, it's artists who are alive making art today. In my view, I, I see an added layer of a contemporary artist as someone who is addressing contemporary issues in their artwork. And that's what I've done with the gallery. It was very clear when I jumped into this world, which I did not know very well. I've collected art. I support artists. I love to go to art fairs. Um, I, I love the arts generally, the humanities generally. Um, but I didn't understand that this was yet another world where all of the inequities that exist in, in the criminal legal system also exist. And so 
I had, you know, in my mind, the idea that what I was going to be doing was uplifting the voices of those who had something important to say. And as it turns out, those very same people are also excluded from this very white world of art. <laughs> and so a lot of the artists that uh, the gallery represents and works with are artists of color, are women, um, you know, LGBTQ. Like I, I am, I'm constantly looking for artists who are at the top of their game and doing this kind of artwork. It is not, um, I, I don't in any way mean to just diminish artists who are emerging and who are just sort of doing, um, you know, art in uh, local art fairs and that type of thing. But this is really established artists whose work is excellent, reaches that level of excellence. And, and that includes what are they communicating with their art? What are they addressing? And so the gallery has uh, regular exhibitions. I would say probably three, uh, depends on, on how long they run, maybe four a year, sometimes group shows, sometimes solo shows. And the idea, the idea is what, uh, what can we talk about? What can we learn? What can we experience through art? And how can we maybe effect change by having this experience with something created by another human being? How might that make me understand your experience? How might that make me want to change something in my community? But it's also been fulfilling in, in ways I didn't expect. Artists are extraordinary. I mean, the things they come up with, the way they see the world, it's like, wow, wow. It's just, it's been, it's been really um, beautiful. And yeah, and so I still run the gallery, although I do have an extraordinary managing director who, who does really all of the operations. I've got an excellent team, another gallery assistant, and a couple of interns um, who do the day-to-day. -day. Now I'm able to just be focused for the most part on the big picture, on the artists we're working with, on the themes, um, and, and sometimes also the programming piece that accompanies the exhibition. Have you checked out, are, are there any galleries, I don't want to put you on the spot, but any galleries in Toronto that you like to visit? Yeah, I have gone to a few. Um, and there's a, um, a glass art gallery. Um, and you have put me on the spot because it was just on the tip of my tongue. And now, oh, sorry, Sandra Ainsley. Um, so I met Sandra because we actually represented a couple of the same artists, uh, David Patchen and uh, Marlena Rose. And I went to go visit her and her son. She was fantastic, super welcoming. I actually went to her booth. She was at the uh, Toronto Art Fair. She does that every year. Um, so I love that gallery. And I will just say to any uh, you know Torontonians who are thinking about collecting artwork, that is the place to go in Toronto. Of course, you could also go to my website. But um, but yeah, so I have to say that's up there for me. But there's so many great galleries here. Look, this is a world class city. I was just in the distillery district last week with my daughter and um, I hadn't been there before. And there's some incredible galleries there. So I, I, I'm not going to play favorites other than Sandra because she was so amazing to me. And I know she represents great artists because we share some. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned the field trip to the distillery district. Now that Toronto's finally open, because like you, we lived here during initially during the lockdown period, we find ourselves still playing tourists. Uh, just the other day, I went to someplace on College Street and I came home. We live in the east end, end of town uh, on the Scarborough Bluffs. And I told my husband, oh, we've got to go to College Street. We should just walk it one day and check out all these places. And he was totally gay. It's just a fun city to be a tourist in if you're not from here. Oh, absolutely. I just had that experience this morning. I dropped, was going to drop my daughter off at school because she had like track at 7 a.m. and we got there so early. We had to go around the block. I'm like, look at all these houses. We've never been down the street. And just, you know, the classic sort of like chock-a-block homes and some were modern and some were older and some were renovated. And you're exactly right. It's just, it's a fabulous city. And I do feel like we have so much to explore still because it's really just kind of opened up in the past year. That's it. That's it. All right. Our time together is, is getting close to the end. So I, I promised I'd ask about this. And for the listeners that don't know, 
David, please correct me if I'm missaying anything or leaving it out. But in the Netflix series, um, it, it ends more or less with Michael Peterson's exoner exoneration is, I think, the wrong term. But I mean, he is he is released from prison and and it is questioned. The evidence on which his conviction was founded is is thrown out. It's found to be junk. And, and the theory of the killing is still sort of up in the air. And Netflix has an additional chapter that opines that perhaps an owl entered the couple's home in Durham. And I, I didn't watch this part, but creates basically a ruckus that causes Mrs. Peterson to lose her balance on the stairs. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, it, it's close to accurate. So let, okay. me, let, me, let me correct it. Um, Please. Uh, so, um, Anyone who has watched uh, the documentary, and, and I highly recommend the documentary, not just because it's about a case that I did, but because it's, it's an extraordinary uh, insight into how the criminal justice system in the United States works and doesn't work. Right. Uh, uh, and it's, it's just, it's a fantastic documentary uh, by an Academy Award winning director. Uh, but um, the, uh, if, if you've seen it, uh, you know that the she died, Kathleen Peterson died from the loss of blood. Um, that was the cause of death. Uh, and, and when you look at the documentary, you see that there's these huge gash wounds on her scalp, which bled, her, bled out and which caused her death. There's no brain injuries. There's no, uh, you know, there's no subdural hematoma. Uh, there's no skull fracture. There's none of the things that you would normally see if someone is beaten. So then the question becomes, okay, well, what caused these injuries? Uh, and the prosecution's theory was that they were inflicted by something called a blowpoke, which is a fireplace tool that's hollow, made of metal, fairly light, but stiff. That was their theory. Well, that theory got blown up during the trial because the blowpoke that was supposedly missing was found. Uh, and so at the end of the trial, they sort of had to switch horses. Um, but our theory was that she had simply fallen down the steps uh, at the end of the day, uh, at late at night, uh, hit her head on uh, the railings around there, and had that is what had caused the gashes. But there was no real evidence one way or the other about what happened. And so uh, just as I was preparing uh, my closing argument, a neighbor of theirs, Larry Pollard, came to my office and he had a theory. And his theory was that there were barred owls, B-A-R-R-E-D, barred owls uh, living in their neighborhood, had been for years. And he looked at the autopsy photos and he thought that the wounds looked very much like owl's talons. Uh, and so he had a theory that uh, she had gone outside before going up the stairs, before uh, going to sleep uh, to place some Christmas ornaments out in the front yard. Uh, the Christmas ornaments were small little reindeer uh, that a barred owl had mistaken them for prey, uh, had swooped down while she was outside the house uh, and had hit her head, you know, attacked her head, uh, caused those gashes. She had then run into the house, not that the owl followed her into the house, uh, but she ran into the house uh, was trying to get upstairs where uh, the towels were and where her bedroom was uh, and collapsed and then bled out on the floor. So that was Larry's theory. And of course, he wanted me to, to, to include that in my closing argument. 
and I tried to explain to him that I, I, A, there was no evidence of that in the trial, uh, and B, even if there, even I wanted to do it, I just spent four months explaining to the jury why this was a fall, uh, and I, I couldn't really change theories at that point. So uh, that was the origin of the owl theory. It was laughed at uh, for years, um, uh, partly because of the way Larry had had uh, uh, trotted it out. He really didn't have any support for it. Uh, but uh, as the time as time went on. Uh, uh, there were owl attacks reported in neighbors in, in neighboring communities in North Carolina. One was caught on a outdoor video, uh, which showed an owl attacking the head of a, of a man who was walking down the street. Wow! Uh, uh, and and now, if you go on Google uh, and you type in owl attacks on humans, you will see dozens, scores, hundreds of, of reports of owls attacking the heads of humans uh, all over the world. Uh, many of them are barred owls. Some are eagle owls, which are a, a cousin. Uh, and there's video uh, of this happening. There's, uh, you know, people have been interviewed after these attacks. Uh, there's often extensive bleeding from the scalp. Uh, but most of these people are, are not dead because they're treated. Uh, yeah. Uh, with Kathleen, uh, if this happened to her, uh, she collapsed on the stairs and bled out without anybody knowing. Uh, so that's the theory. Um, uh, I happen to think that there's a lot of evidence in looking back in hindsight, and, and, and Sonia alluded to this. I think I, I suffered from confirmation bias and tunnel vision when I was handling this case. Uh, because my client in the initial time when he found his wife said, oh, she's fallen down the stairs. Mm -hmm. so that became my confirmation bias. That became my theory. Uh, and so I ignored some things that uh, really are, are sort of inexplicable. You know, there, was, there were blood drops on the, on the pathway leading to the front door. I had no idea how those had gotten there. Uh, I assumed that they had somehow... Uh, that Michael had walked out with blood on his hands after, you know, finding his wife and, and had dropped those, those blood drops. Uh, there was blood on the frame of the door. Again, uh, I had no explanation for that other than the fact that perhaps Michael had, had touched the door. Michael didn't remember any of this. I was just making it up because I needed an explanation in my own head. Uh, there, was, there was a feather or feathers found in dried blood on Kathleen's uh, body. Uh, couldn't understand that. So I, I assumed there must have been a, a down pillow somewhere in the house. You know, I wasn't thinking that they might be owl feathers, uh, you know, and, and on and on and on. There was, there was a, a twig uh, of an of a evergreen tree uh, that was on the staircase right above her body. I assumed that came from the Christmas tree that they had uh, brought into the house earlier that day. It didn't occur to me that it might have been from a you know, from an outdoor tree that an owl has had been resting in. So uh, lots of those kinds of, of pieces of evidence, circumstantial evidence, do I know? Uh, can I say with any uh, degree of, of certainty that that's what happened? No, I can't do that. Uh, but for me, at least at this point, uh, it's more probable than the other theories that I have come across. And so uh, I encourage you, if you haven't watched the episode of uh, The Staircase that deals with the owl theory, to do that, uh, and then we can talk again.
I was going to say, I think it's because uh, Netflix couched it as an extra. And, you know, I was just, I don't have, I don't have time for this. I've watched the, the 10 parts and, and now I have to move on. And, but I, one question I had for you was obviously the neighbor came in too late for the case to, to utilize it, but how is it, do you know one way or the other, how he captured the attention of the, the filmmakers? Well, by the time the filmmakers were involved, uh, we had lots more evidence. Uh, you know, the, wow. film, the filmmakers did the first eight episodes in 2003, 2004. Uh, and then when we filed our motion for a new trial uh, based on the blood spatter uh, uh, junk science, um, they filmed that. They came back for that. Uh, that was eight years later. And then they continued to follow the case for the next, um, I guess it was five years, uh, while we tried to resolve the case uh, with the prosecutor. So by the time we ended up resolving the case, uh, by that point, uh, it was pretty clear that there was a lot of evidence uh, for the owl theory, but it didn't end up in the documentary. Uh, Netflix did their own episode on the Al theory, it wasn't part of, of uh, Jean's documentary. It's just uh, another theory uh, that they uh, they spent some time explaining. So yeah, you mentioned tying this into archaeology, uh, the Owl theory and archaeology. What is that? Tell me more. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Sonia. Okay, so David already touched on some of the things that he missed. Here's here's the the story I'm going to tell you, which is an actual experiment done with forensic archaeologists. Okay. Your husband will probably appreciate this. Yeah. So the, the purpose of this experiment was to look at context bias. All right. So a group of forensic archaeologists were divided into three groups. Each of them was to dig up a skeleton. It was the same skeleton that each group was digging up. And it was a male skeleton. The first group dug up a skeleton with no clothes. The second dug up a skeleton with gender neutral clothing. The third dug up the skeleton with female clothing, like no question. After they did this, they were asked to come to certain conclusions about what, you know, could, could they, were there any findings they could make about this skeleton? Um, the first couple of groups, you know, very few sort of dated uh, when it might've uh, passed away, why it was buried. And so the group that dug up the skeleton in female clothing came to conclusions inconsistent with the fact that this was a male such as the only thing I know for sure is that this person when alive only had one child or I can tell from the formation of the hips that this person had at least two children if not more it was a male skeleton and so the, what that tells you is when this information is given to you subconsciously you are making a conclusions right that is tunnel vision the findings, um, you know, reflect that tunnel vision. And so when David talked about what he missed, whether the owl theory is accurate or not, I don't know. But I, as someone who covered the case, I laughed that out of the park when it came up in 2003. But knowing what I know now and the evidence that exists, I'm like, hmm, could have been. But you wouldn't have been able to convince anybody of it back then. But now when David looks at the evidence that exists, it's a possibility. But because the first thing he heard from his client was what he said in that 911 call, she fell down the stairs, right? You think, well, she must fall down the stairs. And when you think about those injuries on her head, 
There's just, there's no way she could have been beaten. I don't actually think she could have fallen down the stairs because you'd have some brain swelling, you'd have some bruising and it's not there, but actually the possibility of an owl, you know, shredding part of her skull. And if you look at the autopsy photos, it's, I don't know, it sort of looks like a challenge to me. All of us reporters, when we got those autopsy photos, our pagers were going nuts. Like, oh, looks like a chicken did that. You know, like people thought it looked like a bird, but nobody went there. And it was months and months, if not more than a year later, that Larry Pollard brought up this theory. So anyway, so that's the archaeologist thing. And these, imagine, just imagine, by the way, scientists or any experts in a case who are supposed to be impartial, any information they're given from a cop, any information they're given from a district attorney about a case as they are processing information, don't think it doesn't impact them. And, you know, the archaeologist experiment, I think, is, is proof of that, which is something that we talk about and why there should be independent agencies and a whole other topic there. But um, there you go. That's how it ties into the owl theory. Tunnel vision, oh. confirmation bias, all the stuff. <laughs> It ties together all the, the passions of my life, law, criminal defense, and archaeology. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thank you for having us. It has been decades since a fresh perspective has been published on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to soon be releasing its first treatise, Modern Criminal Evidence, authored by Matthew Gourlay, Brock Jones, Jill D. Makepeace, Glenn Crisp, and Justice Renee Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty. This comprehensive 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues from Crown, defense, and judicial perspectives, featuring up-to-date content and real-world examples on a diverse range of topics, including judicial fact-finding, digital evidence, opinion, circumstantial and character evidence, hearsay, judicial notice, the intersection of proceedings, confessions, and privilege, in addition to practice tips that provide readers with years' worth of trial experience, anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. And I can tell you that I've begged Matt for advanced chapters of this book. They are excellent. I've reviewed them and put them into practice in the trial context already. Pre-order your copy today. Visit iman.ca slash LLP dash MCE and enter promo code Lawyers Lounge MCE at checkout for 10% off your copy of Modern Criminal Evidence. We hope you enjoyed the interview. It was a fantastic opportunity to connect with two lawyers who uh, have a great practice both here in Canada and in the United States. And until next time, please stay tuned to the Lawyers Lounge podcast. And we thank Imans for its support and assistance with this production. The Lawyers Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Dana Hawes, and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emond Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Emond exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. <laughs>